You've been looking pretty good these last few weeks, man. Yeah, I got a, a secret stash of the stuff in the mail. Oh, yeah. Oh, you got the Caldera Lab stuff too, huh? I did get it. Dude, this is some great stuff, man. It's a three product regimen. Um, you can go to their website and check the, uh, the third party results yourself. You don't have to believe Ray or I, but we've both been using it. It's great stuff. The three product regimen of the good, the base layer, and the clean slate. People who have used it are experiencing smoother and healthier looking skin. It's really great stuff. Go over to calderalab.com and use promo code deluxe for 20% off. This is a great deal, Ray. Yeah. Look good, feel good, live good. That's what I always say. Absolutely. Calderalab.com. Use promo code deluxe for 20% off of your entire order. This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Welcome to another episode of Deluxe Edition. I am your host, Casey Shearer. Joining me, as always, L. Ray Sexton. What's going on, Casey? Not too much, man. How are you? I'm having a fantastic day, and you know why. Yeah, I do. I'm going to let you tell everyone, though, why we're having a great day so far. We got to talk to legendary comedian Tommy Chong just now. Yeah. What an amazing conversation you are about to hear with Tommy Chong. An hour and a half, and uh, we lost Tommy. His connection uh, faded away. So hopefully we will get to talk to Tommy again in a few weeks because uh, he was in the middle of a conversation, and I I don't think he was ready to stop. So hopefully we'll get Tommy back in a few weeks. So uh, let's get right into it, Ray. I'm not even going to do one. I'm going to do one plug here real quick. If you like this interview with Tommy Chong, go over and check out all of our other shows at deluxeedition.show. And I do have to do one other one because those are the rules. We are a part of the Deluxe Edition Network. Head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com and find all of the other great shows over on our network. And the podcasts of the month this month are Horsin' Around, and the real drunks. All right. Here it is. Our chat with Tommy Chung. Yep. Yeah, man. Yeah. Okay. Anything else you need? Need some money? Uh, bank loan? <laughs> <laughs> How are you, buddy? Oh, fuck. I am combobulated. Combobulated. 
I've got my both my dogs here, or my son's dog, and I'm, the the groomers are coming over. I've I've got a hearing problem. I'm in my office. I've got a shitload of people working on the yard, and and I know the the dog groomers are going to be out there ringing the doorbell, and I like I say I, I can't hear worse shit. And uh, anyway, other than that. You know what? I'm going to light up and say, fuck it. <laughs> Man, I should have moved. I was thinking about moving this outside today so I could smoke a joint with Tommy Chong also, but I, I didn't. I'm a fucking lazy pothead, and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> when it don't say no, is that it? <laughs> yeah, I could. I, I would get in trouble if I lit, lit up in here. My girlfriend wouldn't appreciate that. Yeah. I all so- those ramifications, but. I remember my dad, his, well, Cheech, too. They say no to everything. And then <laughs> that's your filter. If you spend the time to, to, to talk him into it, then it might be a yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I used to actually, during the show, during the opening of the show, I used to take a big vape rip um, oh, of, yeah. the, of the, you know, the THC vape products how do you feel about that stuff because i stopped i stopped doing it because of it just wasn't making my lungs feel great uh, yeah yeah i don't like i mean i i like joints uh, you know i i went back to joints after trying everything else you know gummies and uh, strips and uh, <laughs> i don't know uh, if you can see that but <laughs> yeah what is that oh that's a uh, that's your your, your roach you yeah. say your roaches <laughs> Yeah, I like smoking joints too, man. Um, yeah, yeah. Don't save the roaches. That's that's a poor man thing. They're so <laughs> You know, I think that I do. The reason that I might do it, and like the reason that I have all this shit behind me, like I collect shit now, is because like yeah. I was I was broke at one time, and like I I used to have to save my roaches. That's me. That's me. I, I still got those uh, those habits, you know, like. Uh, you know, I, I never smoked a joint all the way through. I still don't. You know, I, I take a couple of tokes and put it out. That's why I've, I've smoked all my life like that. And I think that's one of the reasons that I'm still here, you know, because you, uh, if, if you can, in your mind, it's like, like diet too. In your mind, if you can say, oh, okay, I'm full, fine. I don't need it. You know, we're, we're kind of trained to, uh, to devour everything on our plate. You know, at least I was, you know, that's another poverty thing. You know, when, when I used to see, I, I, you know, years, I was like in my twenties before I went to my first legitimate uh, steakhouse restaurant, you know, because I grew up not only poor, but Chinese. (laughs) And when you're Chinese poor, uh, I mean, you don't spend any more than a couple of bucks on any meal, (laughs) you know, because you can cook it. You know, rice is easy to cook, and then greens and uh, and and little little bit of beef, because the poor Chinese they always use the meat as flavoring. Uh, you know, not not like in in my family, a steak would feed everybody. You know, you, you chop it up fine, and you walk it in the in the in the wok, and with garlic and ginger and everything, and delicious. But when I 
I guess when I almost, I was almost 30 when I went to my first steakhouse and I had my legitimate own steak. <laughs> and uh, it was, it was, it was quite enlightening, you know. Uh, but I, I got old habits, you know. And 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 I revert I revert it back, but you know I'm 85 now and uh, still here. So whatever I'm doing, it works. Yeah, man. That's that. That was going to be one of my questions, man. So did did you ever think in your wildest dreams? I mean, you're you're about to celebrate your 85th birthday. I mean, yeah. you you look fucking great, man. You you. I, we were just talking about you the other day on the podcast. Like your memory's still sharp. You know, yeah. what do you attribute that to? Extreme poverty. <laughs> you know, uh, when you grow up as poor as I did, uh, things really stick out in your mind because there, there are times, you know, when you kind of, I did anyway. I, 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 the thing I had going for me, my brother and I both, and and my to some degree my sister, but she never got really got into it like we did. We were the cute little brown guys, <laughs> you know. And so when I was a uh, when my mother got TB, I was like four years old, and they got a, found a spot on my lung, and so four years old, I I, I was right into the children's hospital. And, but my my dad was just came home from the war and he was like uh, still suffering from some stuff and and he was single and he's Chinese and uh, you know so and he was a gambler uh, so he went to single life you know and and us kids we ended up in an orphanage like a home a Salvation Army home and so my earliest memories was the hospital which I, is distinct, you know, really stands out in my mind because I got a, a, a needle every morning in the butt. In fact, I, I got it for a while there. I got about three needles in the morning because they were trying all these experimental uh, um, drugs on me to, to, to stop the, you know, the, the disease I had in my lung, which was pleurisy. Not quite TB, but close enough to scare the shit out of everybody, you know. And so I spent about a year in the hospital. And, and the, the worst thing about well, the hospital was having that shot in the butt every morning. But these nurses, they're gorgeous nurses. They liked this little brown guy, <laughs> you know, because I was a little brown guy in a sea of white, white babies, you know, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And so, uh, so I got spoiled with with gorgeous ladies and big titties, you know, early in my life. It never left me. <laughs> Isn't yeah. it cute? They would hand me around and you know, I'd go from one gorgeous lady to another. <laughs> and and when you're that age, I mean it's it, it really affects you, you know, because you're you're getting all the equipment that you're gonna need later on in life. And <laughs> and your whole purpose is to grab one of these gorgeous ladies and big babies, you know? <laughs> so, so uh, my, my earliest memories were so vivid and so, wow, you know, different. I, I, I imagine, but what I remember the most is what I never had a chance to do. 
as a kid. Like, for instance, uh, I went from the hospital right into the orphanage, you know, the Salvation Army home. And my brother had been there before me. He, he, he preceded me. He wasn't sick, so he went right into the home. And he was three years older than me, so he was starting school. And back in the day, you know, kids were, you know, people were really cruel to orphans and, uh, you know, people, you know, like homeless guys. Homeless people in Calgary uh, had to fear for their lives because they were like targets for people that wanted to be mean and cruel to helpless people, you know, and. And, 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 you know, that was, you know, and, and figure out the war was just ending at, at that time. Uh, just a minute. I got a ticket. Uh, oh, it's okay. He'll, he'll understand. It's my son. <laughs> anyway, um, like I said, growing up in the orphanage, uh, it was uh, how big you were got you what you needed. Like if you, I wasn't big enough. And so I, I missed out on breakfast cereal, <laughs> you know, because you would have a, you would be assigned to a table and the bigger kids would just take anything they wanted, you know, and the little kids got nothing, you know, or, or porridge, like the, yeah. the horrible, horrible porridge, but no. So I never had cereal. And then the other thing I stuck in my mind was, tricycles they had toys in, in the home you know and it was like just play with it as, as as it was available well i was shy and uh, i always wanted to try that tricycle but the minute that it was empty and i'd go over to to give it a shot there's another big kid would come in and just just take it take it away uh, take it off you you know and, and so i i kind of grew up Watching as opposed to uh, uh, participating, you know, because when you're in a situation like that, you don't you don't offer your services unless they tell you, okay, your turn. Then you can come. You know, if you step out of line, you, you can get you can get whacked pretty good. The first day I was in, first night I was in. Now I was in being spoiled in the the children's hospital. Nurses every morning, you know, <laughs> breakfast, bed, and, you know what I mean? But just spoiled, rotten. And then when my dad would come, he would bring all the guilt presents, you know, because he hadn't been there for a while. And so I'd get a lot of comic books and uh, and, and stuff that he really liked, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but when I went to the home, when I was delivered to the home by my dad, you know, he, he had all my belongings, you know, I had clothes and I had the comic books and, and stuff. So when I got to the home, <clears throat> my dad, you know, gave them to the supervisor and that was the last I seen of them <laughs> because you don't own any personal stuff in, you know, in orphanages, you know, the good stuff. Well, I guess the staff takes it for their kids or, or, or you know, it's, that's just the way it is. And, and so, so my early, earliest memories you know this is before school this is before i started going to school and so i when i was in the home i kind of roamed around with sometimes with another kid but usually just by myself and because there's no like there was no like supervision in a sense you know 
It was like the home was for kid, people that never had parents or that, you know, were so poor. Instead of being on the street, they'd put them in the home. And the Salvation Army has always been kind of cool about that. And I got to credit them for giving me my spiritual training because you never did anything in the home unless you did like a, almost an hour of uh, church service, you know, the the singing of the hymns and the praying and the, and, and, and the rest, you know, the rest that would, you, would go, goes with it. Like the home, the Salvation Army home, you know, they were the first and probably still are the only like rehab drug center for, for people, you know, down and out people, you know, that, that needs them. You always, you you can always get uh, what you need at the Salvation Army home. You know, that's the way it used to be. It probably still is. Sure. Know? And so uh, it was, um, it was my earliest experience. And, and and it kind of taught me the how, how to survive in, in the jungle. You know what what you did, you found a big friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The oldest kid, uh, you know, he was an eighteen year old, but getting ready to leave the home, and he was like every all the little ones would gather around him because he would make sure that nobody got bullied and you know that kind of thing. He was like our big protector, you know, and and, and that was my earliest. Memories, but 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 like I said, they would pray before they did everything. Say grace say, before every meal, and then pray for the poor people. And uh, you know, it was and, and the the funny thing about the Salvation Army home because it was during the war, you see, and so they had militant Christian songs that that they don't do anymore. You know, they took it off their program. Because it didn't fit with the Christianity, you know. <laughs> like one was onward Christian soldiers marching off to war with the cross of Jesus going at as before, you know. Like the, you're talking about the cru- Crusades and shit. You know? So it was, it was, uh, it was my upbringing, you know. And and I think the positive thing was that. You always had prayer to go to. I always had prayer to go to. No matter what was going on in my life, I would stop whatever I was doing and then just pray, you know. And and sometimes it was, a lot of times it was questions. Like, like I remember one time growing up in, in, in the country, the only reason we had to dress up was to go to Sunday school or church on Sunday, you know, but it was Sunday school. It wasn't church because my dad was far from Christian. <laughs> like, yeah, again, like I said, it was a gambler. <laughs> he believed in God, but only when, when the money was on the line, <laughs> come on, God. <laughs> and, and, and my mother, she, I found out just recently that she's 20, uh, you know, quarter native. Her mother was half, and and even though my mother married a full Chinese guy, uh, the big secret in the family was that all my mother's side were half native. Their mother was 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 half, and they were quarter. Yeah, they were quarter. My and that, they would keep that. They would keep that from other family members. They, that was they, like a, they, a secret. 
Well, they ha- the, the the family members knew, and and, and like then we got we were like uh, Harry and, and you know Marco because my my mom was married to a Chinese guy. You know, we were even lower on the totem pole than everybody else. And, and you know, I mean, very racist back then. You know, we're talking the early 30s, I mean, the later 30s and, and, and 40s, 50s, you know. And, and so so it was exciting to find out that I'm eight. I, I got 8% Native in me, you know, because they always used to tell us, when we asked, you know, and they being just my mom was uh, that my grandmother was married to a Irish, uh, yeah, to an Irish, to a Dylan, an Irish guy, yeah. Uh, but it wasn't. No, my grandmother was actually married to my grandfather, who was Scottish. He's a Gilchrist. My grandmother, half native, her father was Irish. That's that. That's what it was, and her and her <laughs> name was Jemima, and she was born in a little reservation town in Manitoba called Mathican, Manitoba. Now the reason it it blew my mind because I started doing the DNA search, and so the town of Mathican found out that Tommy Chong was connected <laughs> to the city. Well, Mathican is. It's really funny because the natives, you know, the guys from that town, they they don't call it Mathican. They call it my fucking. And so they say, this is my fucking uh, ice arena. This is my fucking uh, theater. (laughs) This is is our fucking school. (laughs) And then get away with it because they're supposed to be saying Mathican. But I'm telling you, I can't. I see how I became a comedian, you know, because my whole lineage was so mixed and it's so, you know, they were like hiding shit from people, you know, hiding the fact that we had native in us when, you know, I'm half Chinese. It was crazy. You know. I'm glad you brought that up, man, because that was actually what, what I was wanted to talk to you about, the, the orphanage stuff. Did you have a relationship with your father then as you got older or like what? Well, my father, like I said, he was a gambler, Chinese, uh, never taught us Chinese. His Chinese was his, that was his life. Uh, my mother, like I said, she was part native, mostly uh, Scottish uh, and very beautiful. And, and she was, she, she, she was the, she was the spiritual kind of special. She only had a grade three education. And so when I would be on the road or anyway, she was a letter writer and she had a, like that grade three scrawl, you know, so beautiful, so beautiful. And she, she had these grade three words. She'd sound them out phonetically and, and never learned to use a, a, a dictionary or, or, you know, because when when her mother committed suicide, when my grandmother committed suicide, the Indian they were half half Indian, and so the the girls, at least my mother, was uh, put up, made a, a domestic worker. She lived with an English family and, and learned how to keep house, you know, do the washing and the ironing, you know. She was a domestic servant, 
and I didn't know how my mom and dad met, you know, because my dad was, was very quiet, hardly talked, you know, and I only had one conversation with him, really. And that was uh, after my, when my mother died, I, I, I flew back. I was in Sardinia or somewhere. And so I flew back and my dad well, first of all, you know how when people die, there's all the family comes out, you know, to the funeral, and, uh, and to the yeah, and so so there's uh, it was very uh, like a party atmosphere, you know, and everybody glad to see everybody, cousins glad to see cousins, you know, that kind of thing, and then I I found my dad, I just got back and I found my dad sitting in the corner and looking so sad, you know, he was the only one that was really mourning. Uh, the loss of my of his wife for you know over 50 60 years whatever they were together they, they they stayed together forever and so i so i took pop i said come on let's go for a ride and so we took for i took him uh, for a ride and then i said how did you meet how did you mom meet we'd never talked about it before and now you know because i'm in the movies and writing and everything else i wanted to know everything and so he told me that uh, he in Edmonton, my mother was there as working as a domestic, and she was uh, with all the other domestic workers, which were mostly Ukrainian. And so, uh, my mother's sisters all married into the Ukrainian uh, side, you know. And so, all, I got all these cousins, you know, they're half Ukrainian, and then the, like my mother's sisters, you know, how sisters are very tight. You know, when my dad was in the army, we would go to the the sisters, uh, husbands, mothers place. You know, all the Ukrainian families. So I grew up very Ukrainian, uh, right? Uh, well, before I went in the hospital, before she, before my mother was sick, and and I got I got a great scar here on my my one finger, my finger here, because my brother was three years older than me, right? And now we're on a farm. And, you know, and the, and what kids do on the farm is they chop wood and carry the wood into the kids. That's your job, you know, keeping the wood uh, basket filled. And, and for some reason, I had this weird attraction to, to knives and, and hatchets. I still do. I, I carve all the time now. Uh, and, and my brother had the hatchet. And he's chopping the kindling, and I said, I wanted to do it. And, and I don't even remember talking. Uh, I was that young. I just put my hand out. And I remember him telling me, you put your hand out there again, I'll, I'll, you put your finger out there again, I'll cut it off. <laughs> and so next thing I know, <laughs> he came down with the axe, and, and instead of cutting it off this way, he cut it lengthways. He came down lengthways. And I got a scar from here to the tip of my finger. But we were so lucky it was in the Ukrainian farmhouse, you know, and so there was no worry about doctors or <laughs> any of drug stores or band-aids, any of that shit, you know. And the old Baba, the grandma, she took my finger, took me in there and walked, cleaned it up, wrapped it up, put an Indian split on it, you know, put bark and, and tied it up and good as new. <laughs> it just, Damn, man. It, it's good of that. And, and then I've, I've carried the scar all my life. 
And I had, I've gotten scars all over my body from my brother because, like I said, he's three years older than me. <clears throat> so when you're three years younger, you became a target. You, you're the guinea pig. <laughs> so, so you're saying you pretty much got chased around with a hatchet your whole life. Yeah, well, not chased around. It was just, it was just boom, one time. But <laughs> but we one of the games we used to do, because we were poor. There was no toy stores where we grew up, you know, because my dad finally saved it, got enough money to buy a, a little cottage uh, on the outskirts of Calgary. And, and at the time, Calgary was surrounded by Native uh, reservations because they got kicked out of uh, America, you know, all the Sioux. So we had Sioux, Blackfoot, uh, uh, Sarsi, uh, oh, hundreds of natives surrounding Calgary. And, and we find out I'm one of them. I, I think I'm part of Ojibwe. And, and, and so we, we had that kind of uh, lifestyle. You know, there was no toy stores. And you made up your own games. Like uh, baseball, we'd be an empty field, and we, they, they, you know, not not me, but the older kids and older men would mark out a field, you know, uh, just from scratch. You know, there was no government or city to come and build anything for them, you know, and that's what you, that's how you did in the country. And so I got into uh, because we had a wood stove, and then I would borrow the paring knife. And we had a rule. The minute I cut myself bad, I had to put the knife up. <laughs> that, was, that was a rule. <laughs> and I followed that rule. And I would I would carve everything, you know, at, at my own leisure. And like we, like we were back in the day, uh, there was like Roy Rogers and Gene Autry, you know, the shoot em ups, the guys with guns, you know. And it was all of it, gun culture because the Second World War just happened. Korean War was was cooking at the, you know, getting ready to cook. There's always a war going on. And and so shooting each other, playing games. Uh, Cowboys and Indians. <laughs> and we would, uh, of course, we're all cowboys. There was no Indians. <laughs> no, there was Indians. <laughs> Nobody wanted to be an Indian, you know. And so every once in a while, uh, like, if they had BB guns, uh, they would get me to change the target. The next thing I know, I'd get whacked <laughs> with the BBs. <laughs> but it was uh, it was a very survival kind of uh, you know uh, upbringing. You know, I learned very early how to make a fire. You know, a small campfire, and uh, one of the things that, uh, for fun. We used to do, like in the summertime, growing up in Calgary, um, there was like, I went, I, there was one camp. I went to a Bible camp one time. It was the only offer we got. <laughs> you know, where my brother and I are walking down the street, down the dirt road, barefoot, you know, and uh, a car pulls up. And when a car pulls up in the country, it's like, whoa, what's going on here? You know, either an ambulance or, or a cop car. But usually, you know, this was some somebody's car, and they pulled up, and they said, uh, you guys want to go to uh, Bible camp? And I said, yeah. <laughs> go anywhere. I want to ride in the car. You know? <laughs> and so, well, jump in, and we'll ask your mother. We'll get permission from your mother. And Next thing you know, 
uh, the next morning, slept at, at the church uh, in, a, in a bed. And, it, and there was a bathroom right next door, you know, a toilet, indoor plumbing. And, and I, there was a bath, though. I don't think I took a bath, though. But anyway, we drove all the way to Pine Lake and uh, lived in tents for a couple of weeks. And uh, and the change, it really, that, was, that really had an effect on me, the Bible camp. Because I was, you know, my, my brother, he was off being bad with the rest of the older kids, you know. There were, that was an adventure for them. You know, there's a haunted house he had to go explore. And, you know, all this, this shit, you know, that older kids did. Me, I followed these young Bible teachers around, and we'd find a nice, beautiful place to, you know, underneath the trees and sit down there, and then they would read Bible stories to us, you know. And then, and then at night, they would uh, come into the, to our tents and, and teach us how to how to pray. And boy, that really stuck with me. Oh, I enjoyed that so much. Uh, you know, the Bible camp. In fact, at the end of the camp, uh, they're giving out awards. And I happened to be, you know, shirtless, leaning over, getting some food. And they said, well, Tommy, you're standing. So keep standing because you won the, the nicest guy award <laughs> there was a girl she won the nicest girl and i won the nicest guy award <laughs> because Does, I, I i i just took to the stories all the bible stories you know they were so great you know and they they taught you so much and so much beauty and so much and more than anything it was that night learning how to pray whoa well and then the older I get, you know, the more I study and the more I learn, you know. And then I got, I I, I was chosen I, I, to do what I'm doing, you know. I, I was chosen without no, no doubt in my mind whatsoever, because you know I I couldn't make I couldn't get through high school. I tried my best, but I I, I couldn't get through high school. I was destined to be a a, a worker you know, some kind of uh, laborer, you know, truck driver, something like that, you know. But I could play guitar ever since I was uh, eight years old. I was playing with with a fiddle player for dances. <laughs> Our neighbors, you know, he found out I could play enough guitar that I could help him, you know. So next thing you know, I'm a, a sideman on it with a fiddle player. And he taught me all about show business, you know. He said, he said, give the people what they want. And if they ask for the same tune over and over again, give it to them. Okay, you're here to please them, you know, and keep it simple. That's all he told me. Keep it simple. If I start getting a little carried away on the guitar, just give me that look. Man. Just keep it simple. And so I, 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 what I learned was the, the beauty of, of keeping time. So, there's so much you can do. Like I've been watching uh, a lot of the uh, the Beatles stuff, and and one thing about Ringo Starr, Ringo Starr was wasn't picked for his looks. He was picked uh, by John and Paul and George because of his reputation as being 
the best drummer in England. You know, the best, best. And and Ringo, the reason Ringo was so good was because Ringo, when he heard a tune, when he heard the tune, he wasn't interested in the drum part. He was always interested in the message of the song. And so he would, uh, he would find a way to complement whatever the message was with his beat. He would put the right beat with the, with the right message of the song, which is the whole point. You know, even though people, a lot of people don't even hear the message or the lyrics, you know, a lot of people just go on the, the melody or the beat. But Ringo, see, that's what, what made Ringo so uh, great. And by the way, because I've been watching all these documentaries of all of the old-time musicians and the guitar players especially, because when Cheech and I were, you know, big, we never had, we never went to concerts because we were always playing our concerts. And so even though we, we, we our, our career mirrored like uh, Bruce Springsteen Grateful Dead, all you know, all of Metallica, all those guys. We never went to their concerts, you know. And if we ever played with them, we just do our show. They do their show, and, and we never got to be fans. And so lately, uh, I've been I, I started watching all these documentaries, catching up. And guess what? One there's one thing that connects all those rock and rollers, and you know what it is? One thing. This one thing they all did. They like boobies. Huh? They like boobies. <laughs> well, besides that. Oh. <laughs> no, there was, you know, you know, the one thing they all had in common, they all went to art school. Ah. David Bowie, Mick Jagger, uh, every one of them, John Lennon, uh, Eric Clapton, Keith Richards, everyone. Every one of them. That was a, a Sting, you know, uh, uh, Copeland, all those, all those great guys. They all did time in art school. They're all artists, and that's that's your genius. Oh, and the Grateful Dead, same as the Grateful yeah. Dead. That's that's how they met each other. You know, yeah, They're all going to art school, and they said, and and then and, and like the Grateful Dead. That's we used to play, you know, my band. Uh, we were kind of in that jazzy, you know, uh, free free for all kind of thing. But we had uh, we had the the black uh, sexy singer, <laughs> you know, the front man. So so it wasn't the long haired hippie. It was a the smooth, uh, you know, uh, uh, pimp. <laughs> you know the kind of pimp guy you know <laughs> that, that was that was uh r&b style well going back into the the beatles a little bit the i, I can't remember his name the the big music producer with the real long beard he's like one of the f- most famous producers uh he actually did the documentary about the beatles uh, about uh rick rubin yeah rick rubin oh so, yeah I heard a I heard someone ask him because you know he's he said in an interview that he's always when he hears music he's always thinking about ways that he could make it better and uh-huh. during that documentary someone asked him you know how, is there anything that you could do to the Beatles music to make it better and he said no that 
there is nothing that you could do to this music to make it any better. He's like, this is the perfect music. No, no. Well, it's so ordained, you know, there was so much, or, you know, yeah, Cheech and Chong, same thing. You know, we, we were ordained to do what we did, you know, because Cheech had no interest whatsoever in doing what he's doing now. <laughs> you know, he 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 wanted to be a potter. He went, imagine that a Mexican wanted to throw pots. <laughs> no, what happened is that he was opposing the war, and and so be, being Mexican, you know, the, he was the the potter that everybody was looking at. You know, the government was looking for. You know, uh, what are you doing here? Put on a uniform, get a rifle, and go get killed. You know. And so Cheech, uh, Muhammad Ali, when Muhammad Ali was going, when he was stripped of his title, was going around giving lectures. He gave a lecture at Cheech's school. And Cheech actually was one of the guys that burned his draft card with Muhammad Ali right there, burned it. And then he made his way up to Canada to work on a, Cheech was very straight, you know. His dad was a cop, LAPD, and, uh, and he was straight as uh, straight as can be. In fact, he was like into transcendental meditation to the point of, you know, he could have been a, a teacher or whatever, you know. He could have had his own cult if he wanted to. <laughs> you, so, kinda, you guys kind of do have your own cult following. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh, you know it. But we couldn't be any more opposite. You know, the way Cheech was raised, the way I was raised, and what Cheech uh, was believed in, you know, what I believed in, but Cheech, he was, he was like the lead singer that I always had to back up. I, I, I was really good at backing up a lead singer, you know, and it wasn't till, wow, well, wasn't till <laughs> I was in my my seventies that I, I I did the mass singer where I actually uh, did a solo. <laughs> <laughs> Because that was weird. You know, when, when after I met Cheech, we started doing comedy. Motown, especially uh, the people I knew when I was playing uh, rhythm and blues at Motown, I never said two words to anybody. You know, you're a guitar player. You don't have to. You don't have to talk. <laughs> and people don't expect you to talk. And... Uh, and a, and a lot of people thought I was just quiet, you know. <laughs> and then next thing you know, I'm running off at the most on on uh, on stage, being funny with Cheech. <laughs> well, speaking of these documentaries, I I heard there's a rumor going around that there might be a documentary coming out about Cheech and Chong. Is that is that true? It's it's already in the can. It's it's ready to come out. They're actually going to see what happens to this writer's strike because if the writer's strikes takes then there's going to be a, a big need for you know uh, material that's already done and ours is already done so in a way if it, if the strike happens then then our our movie will yeah it's a documentary it's it's kind of like a, a modern day it's not a it's not a like a, what do you call those you know uh, the love fest doc you know where everybody's great and everybody talks about how great they are 
this documentary is more like our story from each one of us, and, and there's conflicting, <laughs> there's some conflicting uh, uh, attitude, <laughs> if not uh, facts. <laughs> it's almost- well, I'm sure that you guys definitely remember things different about certain events, I'm sure, right? I don't know why it should be that way. You know, other than to pretend you're something you're not, you know. Uh, but I have to accept, you know, I, I'm accepting it because you have to, you know. People show you who they are. Believe them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So but you you and Cheech are still, like, the last time that we talked to you, you kind of said that you you and Cheech, you know, you're on speaking terms, but not really doing a lot of things together anymore. But I, since then, I've seen you guys have done a, a quite a bit together. Oh yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Well, we got our own uh, line of weed. We got our own line of uh, CBD uh, stuff. You know, we got our, uh, the Cheech and Chong merch are going through the fucking roof. In fact, we're we're looking at uh, improving the deal. You know, going big time. You know, Michael Jordan style, you know. Um, and so so that's happening. Oh, for sure. No, we, we hit that iconic bell, you know. And you can't unring that, you know. So regardless of what we do or what we say, you know, <laughs> it's there. <laughs> it, it's there, you know. You're not going to undo up and smoke, you know. That, that yeah. will always be there, you know. Hell yeah, man. So, um Another thing that we, we got a lot of fan questions, and this is also a question that, that I had, but my cousin wanted to know, Josh Luce, other than the documentary, are there any other Cheech and Chong movies in the works? Yeah, there's uh, I did one a while back. What was it? Uh, fuck, I can't even remember now. It was about the pandemic with Nick Gage. Uh, I forget. Anyway, the, the writers were impressed with my performance and they uh, wanted, they asked my son who is my manager. It was okay. They wrote a script. My son gave him the okay. And and so the script's written and, uh, and Cheech likes it. He he wasn't too thrilled in the beginning, but he, he's been working with the writer and he, they figured out a few things, you know, that Cheech wanted Uh, me. I don't give a shit. You know, Someone writes it. I'll try anything. You never know. You know what I yeah. mean. You never know. I, I, you know. You got to hang that picture up there and live with it for a while to see if it fits. You know. Sure. Another guy that we talked to um, in the past, and we're going to have him on in a couple of weeks. Also, Tommy McLaughlin. He he wrote Friday the Thirteenth Part Six. Oh, um, the last time the last time that we talked to him, he told us that he actually I I'm not sure if he actually wrote the full script or if it was just a treatment for it, but he had an idea for Cheech and Chong uh, versus like the Universal Monsters, like a like a Abbott and Costello type oh, yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, that, I love that. I love that attitude. I told Cheech one time that uh, the only thing we never did was a horror movie, like the Abbott Costello movies, you know. And and so for what for a minute there, especially this last movie, you know, that that we got offered, Cheech was trying to talk the writers into doing a uh, a horror movie, you know, uh, like that. 
but yeah, yeah, all that, all that is is open. But but it, but I've learned. Uh, I'm content to sit back and, and say, okay, you know, yeah, we did up in smoke. Yeah, yeah, I wrote the title movie and wrote most of the movie, you know, and uh, and it was an incredible success. Uh, and all the rest of the like, next movie and uh, nice dreams and things are tough all over. And again, I did it. You know, I called. I ended up being the director. I should have been the director in Up in Smoke uh, because I did a lot of the, the the directing because I did the writing. You know, and 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 you know when you write something, then you're in a better position to. To uh, you know, to tell the crew what you what you want done, and and that's what happened. What happened again? You know, the documentary shows a little bit about it. That, this is where Cheech and I be, came uh, to have become at odds with each other. It was over uh, Lou Adler, actually the the. Um, the director. See what happened with Up in Smoke. I didn't want to go to Australia for another tour. You know, I, I'd had it. You know, because every time we'd go to another city, I had to write a new so- a show. You know, and uh, and new shows. You know, that, that's that's quite a <laughs> that's a quite a trip. You know, it's tough. And I was, uh, you know, in Australia hadn't. It lost its charm, you know, because you just work. You're not enjoying anything, you know. You're just on stage, and then you're off, and then, you know. And so I wanted, I, I, I was ready to do a movie, and so I started. I, I had a friend that was a screenwriter, and and he was also a tai chi master. So he was teaching us tai chi, and and Joel and I, Joel Asker, and I, we wrote a movie, and it was like a Cheech and Chong kind of. It's a movie that is, that we should do. It was called Jack and the Weedstock, and it was about uh, two guys. Uh, they were trying to get to a concert, and and the one guy Chong was sent out to buy the weed, but instead of buying weed, he got seeds, man. <laughs> <laughs> then if he got seeds, then you can have weed forever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that didn't help the concert, man. So, so Cheech gets mad, throws the seeds out the window, and of course, next thing you know, we w- wake up the next morning and there's a giant uh, weed stalk beside us, and then we crawl up the weed stalk and we run into the giant and the whole thing. That was the movie that Joel and I wrote, but when uh, I, we took it, I didn't really, I didn't even, uh, what do you call it? Uh, try to push it, you know, uh, because it wasn't really ready. And that's the way I, I, I'm a procrastinator. I'm not a really, I don't really follow timetables like I should. And so uh, I'm a last minute guy, you know, and and part of it is from my improvisational training, you know, uh, acting. You just take whatever's handed to you and then you make the best of it. And sometimes if you wait, the best stuff comes later, you know, you never know. And so I, uh, so when we started the, the movie, then, then as soon as it, 
we thought, oh, Chichitong is going to do a movie. Then all of a sudden, that Jack and the Weed stock didn't seem, you know, like the one to to do first. You know, maybe the Jack and the Weed stock is something you do down the road. But the first movie, it's we got to show off Cheech and Chong's uh, uh, bits. You know, the ones that are making us famous. You know, the yeah. the, the lowrider. You know, we got to show him. And and then we got to, and it's all about weed. And so I went home and and I wrote a song because that's what I usually do. I'll write a song about what we're going to be doing, and then you know uh, that that that's how we end up doing it. And so I I wrote. Up in smoke, and when Cheech heard it, he said, "That's the title of our movie." <laughs> and then Cheech went. He also wrote the Spanish version of Up in Smoke, <clears throat> and uh, and that's what we got started on. And then as we went along, Cheech's cousin Louis, who was a very good writer, and he was Louis is the reason that Cheech ended up on a, uh, uh, Celebrity Jeopardy. You know the Jeopardy. <laughs> Cheech, he, he was like Cheech's mentor, and he and he got Cheech into you know all through college and you know uh, you know uh, his his art love of art and everything else all came from Louis. Well, Louis wrote uh, part of the Up and Smoke with us. You know we, that's when we had a writing session, and so we wrote the first part of it, and then we would write the rest as we went along. I would write the rest as you went on. <laughs> I'm always saying we, but there was Cheech was never there, you know. And and but you know, and I would leave room for for Cheech bits, you know, because I you know talking I'd, I'd hear about all these bits of how he came home drunk one night and get up and st- peed in the hamper instead of uh, instead of the toilet, you know. And so we put that in the movie right away. And then, we're in the in the trailer, uh, you know, in between shots, uh, and uh, Jade East, the girl that you know in the movie, uh, she starts talking about a roommate uh, whose boyfriend' name was Alex, and and they would she would get real loud and, and she'd be, <laughs> fuck me, Alex, fuck me, Alex, and, she, and so we we put that in the movie. You know? And there was anything that come along, we'd be talking about, okay, let's put it in. And so that's how we we shot that movie for less than a million, and, and, and it took less than a month to shoot the movie. <laughs> Can you believe that? We had to do one reshoot, and that was like a big deal because uh, Lou had put in a, an ending that he thought, you know that Lou got he liked the idea of being a director, and especially it gives you all the power. You know? And so, at the end of the movie, instead of you know waiting for me to come up with a with a bit, he uh, he told me he says, "Oh no, it's okay. We got we we got we're working on an ending." And I thought, mm, "That's nice to hear. Uh, <laughs> I think you better tell me about it." And he didn't. And so they shot it. And I had nothing to do with the writing of it. And then they showed a screening with Lou Adler's ending. It was so fucking bad. (laughs) (laughs) It was the worst ending. (laughs) Something, a movie like that, you know. 
because that that movie was just crying. That was the introduction to Cheech and Chong, you know. Yeah. So just, were you not even in his? Were you not even in his ending? It doesn't sound like, not, like you had anything to do with it. No, I'll tell you what his ending was. Was that you know when Cheech picks me up and, and hey, you know, and then he pulls away just as the cops bang into us at the back, you know. Yeah. Well, his lose ending was that we go back to that scene, and now instead of the car banging into us and driving away, you know, and us driving away, we're, we were so stoned it was all a dream. Oh, my God. He's dressed like a cop, and he looks in there and he's smiling at us. It made no sense. It had nothing whatsoever to do with the story. It was just horrible. But it shows you why certain people are writers and directors, and other people shouldn't be allowed anywhere near uh, <laughs> anything creative like that. You know. Yeah. You know, it's just like Jesus. giving a loaded weapon to a monkey or something. You know, <laughs> you, you don't want to do that. You know. <laughs> So what happened? What what happened with the Corsican brothers then? What whose whose idea was the Corsican brothers? Uh, Mike uh, Metavoy used to own uh, uh, I forget one of the big movie companies. Uh, he had this idea of the, the the Corsican brothers, and now I told Cheech and Cheech Cheech's habit of saying he says no to everything. You know, no, I don't. And so you got to talk him into it. Well, I didn't talk him into it. <laughs> I says, no, we, we're going to do this movie, you know. Of course, your brother, this is perfect. You know, we're going to get paid a shitload of money. We're going to shoot it in Paris. And, and Cheech literally fought me the whole way. He didn't want to shoot it in Paris. He, he just wanted to have some sort of like grab, grab a hold of it somehow, you know. But I, I was a director, and by that time, I was I was a director. There's no bullshit about it, you know. I wasn't, you know. And so I, I put Cheech's wife into the movie because I wanted my wife in the movie. And so Ricky, Ricky was in the movie, and uh, my daughter, Robbie, was in the movie. My daughter, Ray Dom, was in the movie. Uh, see the family. My, my Shelby was, had a big part in the movie. Cheech and I, now Cheech, the only thing Cheech said, he said, I don't want to, this can't be a stoner movie. I don't want to do a stoner movie, you know. Well, the whole idea that Mike Metaboy had was that these were the, the Corsican brothers, but they're stoned, you know. <laughs> and, and and so that's what he wanted to see, you know. But I, you know, I said to Cheech, you know, okay, let's let's do a movie without any dope in it, you know. And I wanted to, sh- I wanted to show the people, you know, the world that, you know, we're, we're not tied to anything. And so we actually shot a movie, and I got the best compliments for that movie not too long ago, uh, when Quentin Tarantino uh, called my brother, my son Paris, and told Paris that, of course, he loved Up in Smoke. But the movie that he was really impressed with was uh, the Corsican Brothers. He said because it was a real movie, and I pulled it off. You know, yeah. I made the I made a a movie. You know, yeah, it showed your it showed your range that you weren't just the stoner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and it, I, to my recollection, it's been a long time since I saw it, but to my recollection, there was one scene where there where you guys where you packed the bowl, if I remember correctly, right? Well, we burned the place down because we're playing with fire. <laughs> you know, there was yeah, it was a bowl, but we but, but we we ended up burning the the place down, and so then we're going to get in trouble. So then. We got to go home, and then Cheech says, uh, "Well, home is this way," and I said, "No, no, home is this way," and that's when we broke, split up. And then Cheech wanted he ended up in Spain, and he lived most of his life in Spain, and I I came back, and I, I ended up back with my family, but I I became a revolutionary while he was gone, and then we meet up again, and, and, and then we carried on, but it was uh, it was so much fun doing that movie. And the only problem I had, you know, again, the Cheech wanted to sabotage it. He didn't want to. Sh- he didn't want to shoot in in Paris. I mean, can you imagine not wanting to do anything in Paris? <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, and so you know, to placate him and, and Peter McGregor Scott, Peter uh, was the line producer, and he had, he he was the line producer on on uh, uh, Up in Smoke and. Uh, no, he wasn't in the line on Up and Smoke. He was the line producer on uh, uh, Next Movie. You know, when I directed it, and then then I kept Peter. Uh, you know, through all, all the all the movies, including the the Corsican Brothers, and and then when Cheech did his own movie, he kept Peter McGregor Scott <laughs> to do uh, Born in East L.A. Okay, yeah. So uh, we have another fan question here. So that's why. I- brought up the Corsican brothers were there any other films that you were turned away from or that people turned you down for because of your persona because they thought that you might not be able to pull off the role because you always were playing the stone the stoner character well i i would never know about them if, if there was you know you know there's so many actors you know there's a part for everybody and usually when they write a part you know if they write it for you like uh uh on the contrary it was the other way around it was uh uh uh, that 70s show they they wanted that character you know and 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 i was uh like the the stunt uh celebrity they called me (laughs) all the kids you know because you know they they had a good show going you know but they they needed that that authentic you know to make it authentic you know because you know the weed circle and all that you know having me just in the movie it sort of you know gave the nod there to uh to to all that to to that side of it you know and sure. then the character that that uh we came up with uh, with the 70s show and myself uh it, it very iconic and very uh easy to do and, and it was like it, it's kind of like me you know uh you know not as uh not as a, a musician like i was with uh up and smoke you know and all the other you know up and smoke nice dreams all that we we're always trying to be a band and i learned i learned a thing about movies you don't want to play um you don't want to do bad music in a movie ever <laughs> because bad is bad. It's just like having a spoiled fruit or something, you know, you know, and because, uh, uh, you know, you can, you can eat it. You don't need, it doesn't mean that you should. 
Right. So that was one of the, the lessons I learned. And that was one of the lessons that why Up in Smoke was such a big hit because we were winners. We were never losers. You see. And whenever you play a loser, yeah, it, it might be good for the ego or whatever, you know, but it doesn't help box office or it doesn't help fans because fans, you know, they, they want to win. You know, they don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. They, 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 yeah. They want, they want to stay up there. And the thing is, Up in Smoke, Cheech really sacrificed a lot doing Up in Smoke. And what he sacrificed, he, he's gotten back in, in so many ways, you know, because he, he using that, that character that he used, it was in so many ways detrimental to the the Latino population. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I guess there are some. I've never really met him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the snobs. <laughs> oh, no, I take it back. I have <laughs> met him. I met one, uh, Luis Valdez. He's a director. And, yeah. and he did not like Cheech and Chong. And he definitely did not like Chong. <laughs> and when he did La Bamba, he yeah. had he had a, a, a cast party, and uh, I got invited to it. I don't know how, what, what happened. I got invited, but when I went there, a security guard came up and told me that I was disinvited. You know, <laughs> he did not want me at that party. And this is Luis Valdez. So, so there was, uh, you know, Cheech really sacrificed a, a, a lot in order to, to, you know, to, to, to do Up in Smoke, you know. And and then after that, uh, we tried that. Ca- well, what we did with next movie, we had him play his cousin. So he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't typecast in, in any way. Right. But he was still Cheech. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But Cheech, that Up in Smoke character is so iconic that if he never did another movie in his life, he would they would still re- refer to that movie as as the incredible uh, character that he did because what he did really up until Cheech, all those characters were played by Jewish guys, you know, or, or white guys, you know, with a fake uh, uh, Latino accent, you know. Yeah. What, what you know? What's his name? Uh, yeah. He had that one, yeah. The characters and they is kind of racist, you know. Yeah, just well, like, wouldn't Jerry yeah. Lewis? Jerry Lewis was big on that too, right? He would always wear the like yeah. Chinese hat. Oh, and... the, with the with the with the with the yeah. Bucky, Bucky yeah. And, and Mickey Rooney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and myself, you you know, when we did our stand up, I used to do a character called Blind Melon Chitlin. Yeah, and that was patterned after my first wife's uh, uh, uncles. You know, uh, they used to come. They be on the phone and uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and Floyd, the drummer for Three Dog Night, you know, my brother-in-law, he was he was very funny, and so he gave me that character. And so when we started doing Blind Melon Children. It was a blind baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so 
so I was doing live. I would do uh, my live melon chilling guy, you know. Now, I didn't have to cop out to the fact that I was playing a black guy because I was really playing a blind guy. It didn't matter what sure. color he was. He was blind and he could play the blues. So, of course, he's either black or influenced by black. You know, he grew up in the South. That's all I can yeah. say. But I, <laughs> Herbie Hancock, you know, the great jazz pianist, uh, he, he was a big Cheech and Chong fan. In fact, he booked us into a jazz, uh, he got us a jazz gig in Switzerland. And yeah, he flew us all the way up to Switzerland, and it was the jazz with the, the top jazz guys, you know, uh, playing it and that. And, and all we did introduce him some some real easy stuff but it was he was a big Cheech and Chong fan but he he couldn't take blind melon chip <laughs> <laughs> and so and so one time we're playing getting ready to play just lately not too long a couple of years ago we're getting ready to play Reno Nevada and Herbie was going to be playing next the next gig and so we came to the show and he, and he saw saw me do blind melon chip and so Herbie goes after the show, he says, you know, man, when you do the blind character, you start off, man, you can play. You can play. That's playing. And then you do that other shit. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, uh, are you trying to tell me that I am so out of line here? <laughs> Doing blind guy? Now, like I said, I could have said, well, He's blind, so it doesn't, and he's from the south. But no, no, Herbie was right. I it was the tail end of of the Jim Crow kind of bullshit that that I grew up with. I, you know. That, Did you stop doing it? Did you stop doing it now in yes. your act? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, we don't do the act anymore. The act is done. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. No more, no more act. Cheech had two ever. New, well, he's got two new replacements. So so we that took us out of the rock and roll thing. And like I said, you don't want to hear a bad band, you know. So, so we did some really good uh, R&B, you know, like uh, You're Ache My Eye, you know, Mama Talking To Me, all those really good, you know, classy songs, you know, rock and roll, you know, Sister, uh, what do you call it, uh, Basketball Jones, you know. Yep. Yeah, I saw you guys in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania. I'm, that's where I'm from, Reading, Pennsylvania. I saw you guys there at the uh, Raya Theater a couple years oh, ago. Oh, yeah, many, many years ago. Yeah. yeah. Fun yeah. times, man. So you guys you guys were always always so great. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we made people laugh until snot came out of their nose. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah, man. So uh, you mentioned fans a lot during this interview. I heard you say that you get like most of the weed that you smoke is fan weed. Like people give you weed constantly. Oh, yeah. Is that is that true? Oh yeah, all the time. Yeah. Well, it's the ultimate compliment. Hell yeah, I man! I wish I, I hope one day that that's that is me. I hope that one day I don't have to pay for my weed anymore. <laughs> oh oh oh! You mean the the give you oh shit yeah? Uh, it started. I had a home in, in Bel Air and uh, I was on the road with Cheech a lot, you know? And so I had the hippies that redesigned my house, you know, Uh, they left a sack of seeds 
there. And so the gardener, this Italian gardener that I had, uh, he found a little natural stream on our property up a hill. And so he built a cistern around the stream. And then he planted <laughs> about 40 uh, marijuana plants in a little gully there. And when I come back from the road, the, the plants are like 15 feet tall. They're just big colas hanging down. And, and there was a neighborhood kid that was sneaking in the yard, stealing them whenever he got a chance, you know? And, and so, so uh, Frank, Frank told me about it. And so Frank told me, he said, he, he sat up one night with a gun. He had a pistol and, and he sat out and, and he caught the kid. Uh, coming into into the garden and stealing the plants and then and then uh, Franco ambushed him you know come up behind him and he said you drop it the bag I'm gonna shoot you in the ass <laughs> and of course the kid when someone tells you where they're gonna shoot you <laughs> that's when you drop the bag <laughs> he dropped the bag he went running home and so the next day uh, Frank tells me about it so I better go talk to the kid, you know. And so it was across the street. <clears throat> so I walked over and the loud rock music being played and I rang the doorbell and all of a sudden the music stopped. <laughs> and so I guess the guy figured out, you know. And so the dad came comes to the door and he said, yeah, can I help you? I said, yeah, I, I live across the street. And um, I said, your son has been coming into my yard stealing the plants, you know. And I said, I just don't want him to get hurt, you know. So just tell him to stop. And the father goes, what kind of plants? <laughs> I said, marijuana plants. And he said, isn't that illegal? I said, yeah. So you tell your son not to be coming and messing in my yard. <laughs> the father goes, I'll tell him. <laughs> At the end of that. <clears throat> And so I went back, and so we harvested. You know, they're beautiful. And that's when uh, there's a guitar player, uh, Tal Farlow. Tal Farlow. When I was a kid, man, I, 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 I'd be in my bed, and Tal would be in my ear, you know. He was such a good jazz guitar player. And then I saw his playing at the uh, Wyatt uh, the on sunset, you know, little little lounge there. And so I grabbed a big bag of weed and went down there and tell. You know, I caught him. He was going into, into uh, after his gig, he was going up to the hotel room. So I got him, gave him his big bag of weed. And he took it, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. That was a really good weed. No, weed is something that, it, it's just a gift. It's always been a gift. I got when I got first got turned on. It was a freebie, you know. I don't. I don't even remember paying. No. Oh no. I. I take it back. I used to pay a dollar a joint for these little pinners. It was mostly <laughs> marijuana dust. <laughs> but the dealers would roll them up real thin, almost too thin. But they were perfect. You could take a 
took one, you know, and even pass it around the band, and then go in and play their play your ass off. So it was all you needed to, to you know, to give you that that play. I have a hard time now because all the time I ever used to smoke was because I was playing or, or carving or doing something. But every once in a while, I'll, I'll get high for no reason. And then, and then one day, I start freaking out. I'm feeling weird. What's going on? Am I getting COVID? <laughs> So the the last time that uh, we talked to you, you mentioned that you were uh, in the works of opening a club, a comedy club slash uh, marijuana room. Is that is that still in the works? You know, I that was my dream. That was my dream, and we got the room. We got the room. Now, I don't know. I, I don't think I will now. I don't think I don't think the room is is uh, appropriate. You know, it might be. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's there's a weird. I, you know, I have to deal with myself, and there's two of me. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, that was a that was a good dream. Uh, you know, having a club. I, I did a rap show, the 420 in Denver, and and I had a my thing. My job was to introduce the acts and then uh, sit in the lowrider car and sign autographs and take pictures, which I did and, and I enjoyed it. And but introducing the act was kind of weird because rap, it's rappers, you know, and so it, it, they're not there for comedy they're there for you know <laughs> to bounce back and forth and they're up and down and try to stay warm or whatever uh, but the third by the time you know then I'm smoking all the time too by the time the third act I had to introduce the third act I thought I got a microphone There's a shitload of people out there <laughs> You know, they don't want me to bring on the act right away. <clears throat> so, and I don't want to do comedy because, uh, you know, they're not kind of ready for comedy. And then I thought, well, what are they ready for? And I thought, I'll just tell them how my day's been <laughs> <laughs> and what I've been doing. And uh, I guess it, I guess it, it kind of worked, but what it really did was, you know, the um, the uh, the show promoters, you know, they're trying to keep everything going, everything moving, you know, get one rap, rap act. You know, they don't like to have any kind of quiet in between things. You know, they want to keep everything moving or whatever, you know. But I went out there and I enjoyed myself. <laughs> Because comedians, when they don't have to be funny, you know, not every, not they don't all. I guess they don't all take advantage of it. I do. I do because I can. I don't mind train of thought. 
you know, because sometimes that muse, man, will, will, will put the words right in the perfect for you, you know. But there's no perfect for a rap audience. <laughs> See, rap audiences, they're very special. They can take a lot of abuse. You know what I mean? Yeah. Guys like me, I, 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 I couldn't sit through a rap. It's too loud. The music's too loud. The bass is too loud. I don't really care about the message. You know, get down tonight. What does that mean? You know, <laughs> you know what I mean. I'm with you. I'm with you, buddy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, everybody, you clap your hands. You know? And so, so what I did, I did a like a stream of consciousness uh, to the point where. I guess the, the the promoter and my son were talking back and forth. Saying, what's he doing? <laughs> I know they're what, what's he doing? He's just talking. <laughs> yeah, and, but I I got I got uh, see. There's little trick people do when they want to get a, a comedian to do their act for nothing. You know, they'll give them a, an award. <laughs> you know, want to give you an award for being a hell of a nice guy. You know. And, and so you can be at eight o'clock and then, you know, we'll have you there till nine, you know, saying thank you for yeah. the award, you know. Well, that that's like a, for most comedians, you do your act, you know, you do your funny because comedians can't get enough of, of being funny. Well, I'm not a comedian. <laughs> I can do comedy, but I can do a lot of other things, too. Like, I can talk about all sorts of shit and keep you interested, but there's no laugh there unless I stumble across it, you know. And so, uh, so, so the, <laughs> so it's a skirball. It's a Jewish uh, university in LA. And so they had all these other comedians up before me, you know, and they're funny as can be, do their act, you know. And and then they and here's Tommy Chung. Well, I get up there, and because it's not a comedy show, I'm not going to do comedy. I'm going to do what I think the people need, you know. And more than anything, see. We're, we're here on, on this planet for a reason. And the reason we don't know why we're here is so we won't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> if you know why you're here, and a lot of guys, I, by, the, by the way, I think a lot of people do eventually kind of know why they're here. And that's why they exit early, you know. And that's why the people that get left behind, you know, they feel guilty because they could have done more, blah, blah, blah. Now, I don't usually tell this this line of thought to anybody, but because we're, we're, we're old friends for forever and, uh, and, and you're interested. The thing is, One thing that all the religious and all the spiritual 
teach you is eternity, eternal, eternal life. That's the word you hear all the time, eternity. No end, no beginning. Eternal. And that's what we are. We are, we are eternal beings. And we've always been here. And when I say here, I mean we've always been together in one form or another through the ages. Because what we are really, we're pure energy. And I can even cut it down even further. I can, we're pure electrical energy. We're positive, negative. And you need both to make energy. You can't just have positive, just can't have negative. You had to put them to both. That creates a conflict that creates energy, that creates electricity. And if you, this is what I learned in my, in my musings and my thoughts and everything else that we, because we are eternal beings, we're not here uh, longevity. Like, like Martin Luther King says, you know, it'd be nice to have longevity in your life, but you know, he's seen the mountaintop, you know, he, he, he did what he came to do, you know, and, and there's a lot of us, we're here because we don't we, we we can't really know why we're here. We just have to kind of follow our, the muse, uh, you know, or whatever path that uh, is open for us, you know, and and sort of like. Well, this is why this is why I found out with with most sages and most wise men, you know, they got one thing in common, and that that one thing in common is the cosmic giggle. When you ask them right question, they laugh. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, you know, because to do any more would be spoiler alert. You know. Oh. Is that the guy? Hold on just a minute. Okay, back. <laughs> My son's in the other room. <laughs> so he's taking care of it. So is does religion still play a big part in your life? Religion, not so much religion. The spiritual part plays a plays a big part. Okay. Come on, get out of this fucking thing. All right, there we go. <laughs> Almost. There we go. <laughs> uh, the spiritual part plays plays a, it's a big part, but it's not. Uh, I hesitate now to to do the spoiler alert, you know, on, on people, you know, because you don't know when when things are going to change for people. You know, you have no idea. Yeah, you know, that that's just the way. Uh, that's the way we built, you know. So my, my 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 job really is to administer to the to the people that that need that they need hope, you know. That that they they need to to have something to cling to, 
you know, because a lot of times when, when especially when, when, as you get older, you lose, uh, well, it's like reading a book. You don't read the same fucking chapter over and over again. You go on to the next chapter. Yeah. <laughs> and that's our life, you know, so you keep reading, you know, and, and so if it's not as comfortable as what it used to be, well, then so be it, you know. Our whole, our whole being, because we're eternal beings, we only learn from experience. And you can only ex- learn from an experience that you've never really had before. You see, that's why there's no one way to go anywhere or to do anything. Or like, it's, it's like skiing, for instance. Now skiing to the to the people that don't know how to ski is is a is like oh fuck it's a survival ex- exercise you know hope I make it through here without killing myself you know and then for people that have skied all their lives it's it's their way to relax <laughs> you know? yeah everybody has a different reason for being doing different things for skiing or for for even doing podcasts different reasons. You know, and and you and there's no one size fits all in anything, and and the same as the gurus. You know, you, you can have a, a guru that knows everything, but it doesn't help you because you're not supposed to know everything. You're supposed to learn as you as you uh, as you burn, basically. You know, and one of the, the the to me one of the greatest things about the weed was that it would it. Slows you down, calm, settle down, calm down, relax. We'll get there. Everything's going to be fine. No rush. Oh, enjoy everything. Enjoy every moment. And that's what I've been doing all my life. All my, I've been an observer all my life. And that's all you got, got to do where everything that I've done, including the movies. It's not me. If it was me, I Nothing. I wouldn't get out of bed, you know. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it's that urge that I have to, to to do things, you know, to if if nothing else, to encourage others, you know. Like I'm watching this African uh, show, you know, where they have a, a million wildebeest grazing, and then now they got to go across the river, and the alligators are waiting there for them. But there's always <laughs> there's always that one wildebeest says, "Oh fuck! I guess I better." Do. No one else is doing it. I guess I'd be the first. <laughs> the way to go. Now he's the smart one because he surprised the shit out of the crocodiles, <laughs> and he he's gone before anybody else figures it out. It's the ones behind it, and now <laughs> the crocs. Oh, here they come! And so they wait for the one that hurts themselves or whatever, and then they. They will go get it. But, yeah, you know, life, it's it's so amazing when you, when you get to the point where I'm at, you know. I'm at a point now where it's inevitable. My end, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm near the end. No matter how you look at it, I'm near the end. But I had a I had another friend, Zabel. He was a bodybuilder, and he 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 got he contracted malaria when he was 
fighting the Japanese in the Philippines. And he's a bodybuilder. And he'd been married, what, three times or four times. Every time he'd get a divorce, he'd tell the wife, take whatever you want. (laughs) (laughs) Take whatever you want. It's yours. (laughs) But he was so well built that right at the end of his life, he had malaria and had some other issues, I guess, you know. He was about 83 when when he when he when he knew he was going to die, and then he he went back to New Jersey to be home, you know, and, and uh, but before he 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 used to work at Gold's Gym. He was a guy that was supposed to answer the phone and, and sell T-shirts, but he didn't either one. <laughs> he felt like it, you know. <laughs> but I'm I went to say goodbye to him because I knew that he he was going to be leaving, and. I'm waiting. I, I, I get to the gym, and I look, and, and in the corner, kind of out of sight, was this gorgeous model. She had a, you know, in her 30s. She was waiting for Zabo to get off work. Because <laughs> <laughs> Zabo was a legendary. He was built like a black guy. You know, he, he he had the equipment so much so that even though he was dying and sick, the girls are lined up and saying, one more time, Zabel, come on. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? That's amazing, man. I don't know what happened. We can still hear you. What happened? We all deal with the Sunday scaries, right? Sunday scaries are those, oh, shit, stressful, nervous, can't sleep, dread feelings that hit you on Sunday evenings when you think about work or just freaking life. Unfortunately, you can feel that same pit in your stomach any day of the week. Thankfully, Sunday scaries CBD gummies were made to defeat the crap that life throws at us. These are the perfect CBD gummies for professionals on the grind, super moms, students, party animals, and everyone in between. Look, I get really nervous before these interviews that we do. So I take two CBD gummies every Sunday before these interviews, and the Sunday scaries are gone. I have no problem with these interviews. So we've partnered with Sunday Scaries to bring you an incredible offer. Head over to sundayscaries.com and use promo code DELUXE15 at checkout to get 15% off of your entire order. That's sundayscaries.com and use promo code DELUXE15 at checkout to save 15% off of your entire order. Well, it looks like Tommy is not coming back. Looks like he lost his uh, internet. We were only supposed to have Tommy for one hour. We had him for an hour and a half. The conversation was amazing. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to get Tommy back in the next uh, couple weeks, hopefully, and finish that conversation up because I still I still had more to ask him. I mean, I, and I think that he would have. I think that he would have talked longer. Uh, it's just I th- something's up with his internet. I'm almost positive of it. Yeah, it seemed like the battery died on the the the, the iPhone or iPad or whatever he was using. So I'm sure when it recharges up at like 3 a.m., he'll call you right back. And finish the interview. I have an early flight to Vegas tomorrow at 6 a.m., but I can guarantee you if I got a call from Tommy Chong tonight at 3 a.m., I would 
haul myself out of bed and get over here into this room and record the rest of that interview with him. And I bet you he would just start talking like there was no gap in between. I'd have to switch it over to my phone so I could talk to him on my way to the airport. (laughs) All right, let's wrap it up. If you like this interview with uh, Tommy, go and check out the rest of our interviews over at deluxeedition.show. Next week, we have J.D. Slacker. Make sure you check that out. See ya.